0: Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. My name's Jordan Runtag. Thanks so much for listening. We've discussed the making of Bowie's landmark track Heroes, one of the most mythic songs in his canon. Everything about its creation is loaded with drama. It was recorded in an old Nazi concert hall within sight of watchful East German snipers atop the Berlin Wall. And of course, there was the famous Kiss by the Wall, which supposedly inspired one of the song's best-known verses. My guest today not only worked at the legendary Hansa Studios, the so-called Hall by the Wall where Heroes was recorded, he actually sang on it, eye-to-eye with Bowie himself. And that's just one of his many incredible stories. His name is Peter Bergen, and he worked as an assistant engineer under our previous guest, Edu Meyer. When Meyer was on vacation for much of the sessions for Heroes in 1977, Peter stepped up and took over. He helped achieve the epic, expansive sound of the title track, and he also helped get those gargantuan drum sounds on Lust for Life by Iggy Pop, whom he still refers to by his given name, Jimmy. Peter did all of this, and he still found time to bring David's son to school on occasion. Our conversation was a joy. Peter shared his memories busted some tall tales, and provided fascinating insight into the man and his music.
3: You know, basically, the, the, the story of me with David was, um, I began as Edu's assistant in 76. So I was around at Hansel when when Lowe was done. Um, but because basically there wasn't a lot of work to be done um, because they they basically just mixed it. Uh, They mastered Lowe because most of the recording was done. There was a few bits and pieces done on top um, during Lowe, but I wasn't around much. But I'd I'd, I'd met him. I'd sort of rubbed shoulders with with Wisconti. I don't think we gelled then. Then obviously in 77, when uh, David came back, with uh, Jimmy for Lust for Life. Um, we we went to a different studio. We were in Studio 3 then. Studio 3 was completely up and running because that had been completely rebuilt. And uh, we weren't able to record in the Great Hall. Yeah, so um, we, we did hear uh, Lust for Life in Studio 3, which was downstairs at Hansa, and was a, a thoroughly modern studio. It would, it, it, I would have said for that time period, it was probably stated... Uh, Meant to produce state of the art, you know. They were they were looking at uh, uh, other studios and thinking, okay, how can we be probably the most uh, uh, polished studio to be?
0: I don't know if you've seen any photos of Studio Three. I saw it with the the old wood paneling and the and the recessed lights yeah. and everything. Yeah, it looks very it looks right. very modern. Yeah, yeah.
3: It was all like that. Yeah, it was really really plush. Unfortunately, I don't think the the ambience um, was quite. As good, um, it, it probably suited more more German pop at the time than it suited uh, anything else. So when we did Lust for Life*, uh, Ada and I had been experimenting with trying to get more sound out of the studio. So we 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 mic the drum kit out in the big part of the studio instead of um, you know having it confined in a drum drum booth like most uh, you know, drums were recorded back in those days. We were looking for to get more of a, a booming sound from, from drums, um, and which is what we liked. So so I was sort of feeding off Edu, and Edu was feeding off myself the way we wanted, because I, I did a lot of live, live work at the time, mixing live bands and doing uh, live work, because I managed a few bands, which is how I actually got into the music side and got into the Hansa. So we were looking looking at, at that side of it, and of course David was working theoretically as producer on that on that album with a lot of, with a lot of uh, um, artistic input. Um, and we had a guy called Colin Thurston. I, I don't know how they picked up uh, on Colin in London. Colin had been working in London at the time, so he came across, and I think he's actually listed as producer on the album, although. Really, David did most of the production. David and Jimmy handled most of the production side of it, uh, and Ada and myself handled the engineering side of it. You know, Ada, Ada, of course, in the front seat, and I was just sitting in the back seat, putting in my input. And that was really my first time of working together with David. What what I, 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 I did appreciate at that time with David was I had a couple of ideas for the way of doing some of the backing vocals, um, for Lust for Life, you know, this very high-pitched, Lust for Life, yeah, yeah, part of it. Um, that was part of my input into that. And David said, yeah, well, come on, go and record it.
0: Um, <laughs> Singing in so. front
3: of David Bowie. Uh, uh, Yeah. And so I sort of laughed and I went, well, okay, yeah, that was it. And then Adrian said, yeah, go get in the studio. We'll put a mic up and put a mic up. And I did this, that Lust for Life bit and did a bit of backing vocals on Lust for Life. I also sung backing vocals together with David on Passenger. So if you listen to the backing vocals on Passenger, that's David and myself doing the backing vocals.
0: Was that intimidating? Was that scary to do to sing with him? well well it wasn't really
3: intimidating it what it was was um um i met you know we'll go back really in history now i met Jimi hendrix when i was 15 wow in berlin at a, at a, at a concert yeah wow that is it, it it you know for a 15 year old that trips are like fantastic <laughs> <laughs> and, and and most most of my my uh, time after that was going to live con- concerts and i met a lot of uh, musicians live in the Deutschland halle because I used to uh, work as a like a stage monitor and um, running around because I spoke German and English uh, I, I was able to uh, you know, get into the live venue uh, as on a working basis. So you know, I did things like just making sure the, the the band were happy and the roadies had everything they wanted when they were arriving. If anything was short, I made sure they got it, and so things like that. So I saw a lot of live music in Berlin, and I got involved in a lot of live side, and but I always wanted to be uh, an artist. <laughs> My unfortunate situation is. I'm no good. <laughs> you, know, you know, I can play a, a three chord, 12 bar, um, but I wouldn't even be as good as status quo. So, <laughs> oh, ouch. You know, yes. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. So, you know, my limitations were enormous, but I had a lot of influence on a lot of the local musicians and a lot of the local bands. And I, got, I put bands together. I, I managed a lot of the bands on the live scene in Berlin. Um, which is how I ended up meeting Adam. Um So, so when David said, you know, let's do these vocals for me, it was like, yeah, but why me? You know, I can't sing. But, but David, I found always to be somebody he 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 liked to encourage people. Now, I, d- I don't know what he was trying to encourage me for because I was never going to be 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 an artist, <laughs> you know. Um, but 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 he knew I I I think. I wanted, wanted to produce. I wanted to produce my own artists, and I wanted to get things going. So I was working very hard on that. And David seemed to encourage me there. Um, but then when it came to Heroes, and Tony was uh, – uh, we spent a week, just David and myself, in the studio um, before anybody else arrived, while the equipment was arriving and bits and pieces like that, we, which I was looking after the, the whole issue, and David was – in the studio, playing piano, playing a bit of guitar, trying to work out what he wanted to put together as his new album before anybody arrived. Um, and then when Visconti arrived, he was very, very disappointed, of, I think, you know, in retrospect, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this, I think he was very disappointed that Ada wasn't there. Mm. And, he, and I think he was looking at me and going, well, you know, why have we been given the, 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 the amateur? Why have we been given this guy, you know, that who is he and what is he? And He, he had this arrogance about him that, you know, he was the guy that knew everything. Mm. And I was probably not fit to be there. But unfortunately, because of the workings of the studio, and Studio 2 was actually quite basic In in We had lots of problems with wiring. It was historically, you know, trying to get everything sorted. You know, he needed somebody that understood the studio because he wouldn't be able to, it was was back as if it wasn't as straightforward. Um, So I needed to be there, but I don't think he wanted me to be there. Um, And then subsequently, um, when we got all the, the music down and all the music tracks and all that part of it, they started working on the vocals. But once again, I had to be there to um, sort of make sure the studio was operating, make sure the mics were put in the right place. And, you know, just on the heroes thing, he talks about that the way he set the mics up um, and set them up through gates. Well, you see, my own problem is we didn't have the gates he's talking about back in 77 in Hansa. Um, uh, And I have an email from our technician, our studio technician, when I queried him about this quite a while ago. And I said, you know, Teddy, Tony was talking about these microphone gates that he set up to do the vocals of David um on heroes um, that you know the one microphone would cut in after the next one and the next one
0: the close-up um, one the middle one and the further one to get the sound yeah, of the whole yeah. yeah but we
3: didn't we didn't have that now my remembrance of it and i say it's my re- remembrance of it the way we did it we did everything manually we had different mics set up now i can't recall it being three mics set up but i know there was two mics set up so he he professes there were three I don't recall it being three. I probably two, and I remember we having to cut from mic to mic, and going that way manually. Yeah, wow. everything had to be done, but it, but but it all went down on one track.
0: Because that was all they had left.
3: Yeah, that's all we had left, and I mean, and you have to look at it in this way. Um, the only people in the studio at the time were David, Tony, and myself. So the only three people that know how things were put together then are those three people, <laughs> those three individuals. <laughs> um, and in his interviews uh, with the BBC, he he uses Ada Meyer did this and Ada Meyer did that. Well, Ada Meyer was in the Caribbean on the beach. <laughs> 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 um, but so basically he just has never ever said Peter Bergen did this or Peter did this or Peter did anything so I was talking to another journalist and and he said his one of his opening statements was he said I don't understand any of this Peter you have been airbrushed out uh, of heroes there is no mention anywhere of you working on heroes and I went okay well that's fine (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not a big deal out of my life because I, I was there um uh i didn't get paid any extra i was paid a pittance at the time because i was on an assistant assistant retainer which was useless i i lived outside the studio in a in a in a caravan you know in a trailer as you would call them in the states
0: wait outside in, the,
3: be- in potsdamer Platz. yeah Right outside the studio, in, 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 uh, because I couldn't afford an apartment. On the wages I was getting out of the studio, I couldn't afford an apartment. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah I, it, it is, you know, historically, it's, it, it's great. Um, but I loved working on Heroes, because we had a, a restaurant in the studio called Studio Traffic, which was uh, run by an ex-boxer ex-German champion boxer, not a world champion, but he was a German boxer. And, of course, RCA were footing the bill, so it would be, oh, we're going to have dinner. So <laughs> Peter, got eat, Peter got to eat good good food while, while David was doing Heroes on the bill of R, 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 RCA.
0: <laughs> good, they owe you.
3: Yeah, so, you know, and that was the same with uh, uh, um, Lust for Life. You know, I, it, it was good when you had a good... And it was different artists as well. We always. So I mean I used to live eat quite well, but um, you know I had a little gas canister in, in my in my uh, trailer for the winter. <laughs> to, to keep me warm. But, but that was basically what my life was.
0: What was that area of, of Berlin like then? I mean, I've seen pictures, and it, it looks like something from, from a movie, like Blade Runner or something. Can you describe like what that part of West Berlin was like at the time? Well, yeah, well, if
3: you can imagine the Rasa, all right, um, you, you turned off a small, uh, it, it was like, a, like uh, a mainish sort of road, that went from uh, down near Checkpoint Charlie, and it would come up um, just along the the. Let me see which side of the Ufa that is. It would come on one side of the Ufa up towards um, um, the um, uh, Deutsche Oper, the Berlin Opera House. But from Hansa Studios right across to the Opera House, there was nothing. It was just derelict. It was like cleared, cleared bomb sites. Wow! So it was all just you know what used to be rubble. I'm sure you'd be able to see pictures of it. And um, and then if you came out of the studio, out of the, out of the front door, if you turned right down Kürtnerstrasse, about two hundred yards down the road, it the road stopped. Because that was the Berlin Wall. So you now have the Berlin Wall right in front of you. Now, on the Kürtner between Hansa and the Berlin Wall, there was one more building standing, there, which, is, which is, if you look at one of the pictures there is from Hansa, I can maybe send it to you sometime. You can see this one building out of Studio 2 window. Um, you virtually cannot see the Berlin Wall out of the Hansa Studio window. So this story that came about of Visconti kissing Antonia Mars outside uh, 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 under, you know, at the Berlin Wall, and David had seen it from the studio window, is, is, it's not possible. <laughs> so, so I think over the years of heroes sort of being uh, marked as the work it has been marked recently, because initially it didn't really make it, I think they they also inherited a little bit of artistic scope to way it was put together.
0: Make it a little more poetic. Absolutely.
3: Now the other thing is, um, when it came to do the backing vocals of Heroes, uh, and this is these are my facts now. I'm not sure if you'll get anybody to ever agree to this because the only other person that and. Um, is alive that was there. Tony Visconti was Tony used to like to double David's voice in backing vocals. So so basically, if you listen to when he was doing choruses, it, he would overlay the same track two or three times in David's voice. So if you listen to some of his earlier stuff, um, you know most mo- most of David's sort of choruses are doubled. So you hear his voice, uh, and I had the the idea that to to get um, this, you know, we could be heroes because it's like you're you're talking to 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 people. So as opposed to David doing the backing vocals, there would be a reply, and um, so you would have that secondary uh, statement afterwards. Um, and if you listen to the vocals, obviously you've got that. So we did what we decided to do was double it up together. Now, Tony Visconti claims that he went into the studio and Edward Meyer was at the recording desk. The actual fact was I went into the studio with David because we'd done it on, on Lust for Life out of a bit of fun, and Tony operated the desk, and we did the backing vocals. Once again, in the BBC interview from a few years back, Tony said, if you listen carefully, you can hear... David, with an English accent, and you can also hear uh, a Boston accent. Well, if you actually listen to those two <laughs> vocals that are uh, on the backing track, which he, he actually separated for the BBC interview, there isn't, there isn't a Boston accent because it's not turning to Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, and you. I can hear, I can hear, clearly hear David and I can clearly hear myself. And so I just have the pleasure of going, thanks, Tony. You isolated my vocals. <laughs> so, you know, and, and that's it. But, hey, listen, it, I never got paid paid for any extra work. I never got paid any extra money for uh, being being the engineer on Heroes. I never got any of the credit. It made no difference to me in my latter life, because it was about a year after that I decided to give it up. I was fed up. I spent another winter in the in the trailer. And, uh, I got together with a, a girl that had an apartment, and she said, "What are you doing? You need to earn money." Um, and uh, uh, I went and got a job in, in a bar, which I was being paid twice as much as I was being paid in the studios. And then I also started doing pirate pirate uh, video cassettes to all the people that used to come into the bar. And eventually I opened up five video rental shops in Berlin. So <laughs> it was a complete contrast to what I'd been doing.
0: Um, but you... You sang with David Bowie on Heroes. I mean, that's something that, you know, that's, you take that with you wherever you go, just inside. Wow. That, I mean.
3: Well, yeah, um, I don't know if you, if you were aware of the uh, London Olympics, Heroes being played all the time. And I used to listen, I go, great. So when he comes on the radio, I'm driving down the street and it comes on the radio. I just go, yeah, okay, here it is. I'm singing again. <laughs> and, 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 and a few people that know me and know it's me singing, you know, uh, they, they'll send me text messages from time to time. He said, Oh, I just heard you singing on the radio. And well, I'm going, Oh God, no. <laughs> you this, sound this, great. This. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Hey, listen, it's so simple. You know, we, we can be heroes. It's so easy. You know, it's, it's a very easy line, but, but, I, I feel more, I would like to have the credit for the idea of putting that in in a, a reply to the, to the main vocal, because that was my idea. It was me saying, well, rather than doing it this way, where you're actually singing the chorus as a chorus, why don't you like echo it? You're, you're getting a, an echo back from it. So it was different. So, yeah, that, you know, that was my input. Into that. Also, my other input was uh, I was managing a band that uh, Antonio Marsang was the singer in, um, and um, we we were doing a demo in one of the studios one morning before we did here. We were doing it in Studio Three before uh, David came in to go to work in Studio Two, and I introduced Antonio, to David, and um, uh, Tony Wisconsin.
0: Wow. So you kicked it all off. You kicked that whole verse off. You introduced the two. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. (laughs) Like I said, you know, the mystery
3: of whether David ever did see them kissing, I don't know. But he definitely from the studio didn't see him kissing in front of the wall. But maybe he saw him kiss somewhere else. Now, as far as I know, from my, my knowledge, was Antonia Mouse had a boyfriend at that time. Uh-oh. Because he was the road, he was the roadie with the band that she was singing with. So and Tony had a wife. So did they have this illicit thing? I don't know. I, I never saw them kiss. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know there was anything going on. But then you know, I was probably busy <laughs> doing a lot of other stuff <laughs> to to be. And and the other thing about that whole period with David and, and Jimmy, we didn't socialise. Mm. So when the day was over in the studio, that was it. They go their way. I went mine. Because the other thing I've got to say about it is I wasn't a fan of David Bowie. My, my you know, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, um, uh, 10 Years After, uh, Jethro Tull. That was more harder my stuff. scene. Yeah, harder stuff. I mean, you know, from 15, I mean, at 15, my brother took me to this concert with Hendrix Ten years after, Canned Heat, uh, Haarum, uh Oh, I can't remember who were at this big concert in Berlin in September of 70. Uh, and of course, me being a 15-year-old wanting to find out everything, uh, I, I, I talked my way into getting into the, uh, the backstage area and I, I got to meet Hendrix. What was he like? Backstage. What did he say? Uh, Well, if I give you this background, Jordan, my father worked in Berlin, all right, which is why we lived in Berlin, and he worked for the British military, and his job was listening to Russian uh, and East German radio, because it was the Cold War period, and he worked in a place called Teufelsberg, which is the Devil's Hill. Now, Teufelsberg was a listening station in Berlin for for the Allied military. And all he would do is listen to German and East, East German and Russian radio uh, uh, conversations and write it down in English and send off to intelligence. There were about a thousand people working in Teufelsberg at the time. So my father wasn't doing anything like James Bond. He wasn't <laughs> special. <laughs> all right. Uh, but then Jimmy says, what are you doing in Berlin? And I said, oh, well, I'm here with my father. Well, what's your father doing in Berlin? Well, he's a spy. Since <laughs> I was a 15-year-old, I've got Jimmy Hendricks in front of me, you know. I want to be impressive. He's a, he's a spy. You know, I, I probably would have got battered by my father for telling anybody. <laughs> But that was it. And he asked me all these different questions. So it was me wanting to find out how do I play this and how do I turn into be what you are and everything like that. You know, he wanted to know, what are you doing in Berlin? Why are you in Berlin? Wow, it must be fantastic. So that was it. And then, unfortunately, my, my brother then found me and, and, and dragged me out of there, <laughs> more no. or less. Oh, I mean... I, I, I think we were probably there for another five, 10 minutes or something, and then, you know, the, the next band was getting ready to play, so we were now going to go out and watch the next band. So that was that. Um, but for for many many years, it was my brother's his story. Is oh yeah, I took my brother to see Hendrix, and I had to pull him out of the dressing room because he was he was he was bending Jimmy Hendrix's ear. <laughs> yeah, so he loved the story. But you know, but he was he was ab- absolute nice guy. You know, but most of most of the 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 artists I've met doesn't matter how big they are, how special they are, they are really genuinely nice people. And David was just the same. David was a, a, a gentleman, as far as
0: I was concerned. What was his relationship like with 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 Iggy Pop with Jimmy?
3: Well, they, they, they were sort of. Uh, initially for Lust for Life it felt like they were joined at the hip <laughs> you know not sexually but you know like you know th- th- yeah they just hung out together and they were together they were around and everything they they would leave the studio together they would arrive at the studio together did they behave? They oh yeah yeah that's one of the things I have to say because you know you have all these stories about the, the drug problems they had in the states and um, before they came to Berlin and they came to, but in the studio, the studio was always clean. There were no drugs about the studio. Um, I think there might have been a little bit of pot or something, you know. But but listen, there was there was no drug sessions at the studio. What they did as soon as they left the studio, I don't know, you know. And and there are pictures of David and Jimmy, I think, at a, a, a bar called Rommy Harg's which was in, back in those days was. Uh, uh, a transvestite um, bar. They used to do transvestite shows. It was one of the in-places to go. Um, Romy Harg's. You know, there's even been talk that Romy Harg has made a statement that she had a relationship with David. I don't know about that. You know, but there's a lot of people. Anybody that sort of rubbed shoulders with David, I think over the years, has tried to make a story out of it. But, um, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I have some fond memories of, of the time I spent with David, because um, at, one, uh, at one stage, his son was in Berlin, and he was actually going to a, a British military school in Berlin, and, and I had I had to drive him and the childminder to the school a couple of times, because we had a little Volkswagen bus, I, t- I took him to school a couple of times, and... I could see this interaction David had, you know, as a, as a father and also on Lust for Life. I, I don't know what the issue was at the time, but David spent a lot of time on the phone from the studio um, because it would have been late night. Well, obviously in California at that time, um, it, it would have been sort of daytime, even time. And he spent a lot of time on the phone back and forwards. And few, I, I think you... I, I I don't actually know what the conversations were about, but I think it was about you know the the part the parting of the waves and and when when Duncan was going to be sort of with David full time and all all those things. So yeah, I, I you know I saw this emotional side of David just by chance um, of being there. That you know he wasn't just this superstar guy that um, you know had this persona that he wanted to put out of people, you know, he, he was also a human being. He was also a person that cared, you know. And I think the love for his son shone through at that time as well, you know. You know, he was a, he was a father. And those things make a difference. And I, I, don't, I don't think those things ever really came, came, came to the fore in his life because Until later, of course, when he, he, he married um, the model. I can't think of her name. But anyway, um, I think he kept his private life private and then he put out this per- persona for, you know, b- being the superstar. And this is why he had these different alter egos that he had throughout his career.
0: Yeah, he only saw so, yeah, what he, he wanted you to see.
3: Absolutely. But if you actually... Had you know, if you were there when when the curtains opened for a little while, and you saw behind the curtains, you could see th- this was a real person. This was a person that cared, passion. I mean, he he told me of a story about being in Tokyo and in this hotel in Tokyo, and he said uh, I, I think they were they were they were doing a, a a gig there or something, but he was in this big uh, hotel in Tokyo and just by chance he opened the door to walk out into the corridor, and who did he bump into? John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And, and so he's he just telling the story about being in Tokyo, and, yeah, and bumped into John Lennon and, and, and Yoko Ono, and, they, you know, they spent the evening together or whatever, and I can't remember the exact details of what he told, told me, but I'm just going, wow, <laughs> you know, that must be mega, because that would have been something very, very... Uh, dawned into me, you know, being in the in the presence of John Lennon or George Harrison, you know, those those are people that, you know, t- to me would
0: they're my childhood. Who were some other acts that you worked with at Hansa? Are there any any heroes of yours? One of the funny things um, that, that happened was um
3: after we'd done Lust for Life and we'd done Heroes, the, the back end of that year, um there was a session booked. The sex had booked a session. Well Here's, here's the funny thing now. We had six uh, people working in the studio, based, basically as recording engineers. Me being one of them, Tom Ida Meyer, a guy called Will Roper, um, a, couple, a couple of others. Nobody wanted to do the sex business. I was told that the sex business are coming and I'm doing the sex business <laughs> session. And I went, I went. And I went, why? <laughs> nobody wanted to do the Sex Pistols. I said, why? And they said, well, nobody wants to do them, so you're doing them. I went, oh, okay, brilliant, great, I'll do the Sex Pistols. Uh, and that was it.
0: What were they like? Were they, like, fortunately, nice? No,
3: fortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure which, all right, they canceled. <laughs> and they think the band broke up before that, there was some issue. But they never arrived at Hamza. But they had booked a session, but nobody wanted them. <laughs>
0: And I can kind of see that.
3: I can understand. <laughs> yeah, that was it. But, um, yeah, so there was a lot of stuff. But then, I, like I say, I, I was doing uh, a bit of German pop um, and getting sessions that really nobody else wanted, so I was sort of at the bottom of the pecking list. Um, and uh, I just went, you know, I can't afford to do this anymore. And I gave it up, which is a shame, because I always look back and think... If I would have maybe persevered persim- persim- me in another year, two years, maybe I would have done it. So I've done a lot of things since. And, and I have no regrets. You know, I don't regret uh, leaving the music industry because it didn't do anything for me.
0: What was it that David and Iggy, or Jim, I guess I should say, uh, what did they like about Berlin at that time? And what was it like for you as a Westerner being there?
3: Berlin was very raw at the time because um, there's, uh, there's a movie uh, or a, a German series on that I've been on. I watched recently, which I thought would give you a sort of insight into what it was like over there um, with East Germany. And it's called deutschland 83 deutschland 89 uh, and deutschland 86 83 86 and 89 They're, it's a it's a, a German produced uh, thing but it's it's about the Cold War and it's about the Berlin Wall coming down and all the things that were involved in that and the spies and all you know a lot of other stuff but it, it gives you a great insight into into how Germany felt in itself, and of course Berlin was an island in East Germany. so if you sort of if you could imagine taking uh, Berlin as an island and lifting out into the middle of an ocean, uh, that's one way of saying it was an island. but if you actually take Berlin and you can imagine putting it into the center of Russia, okay <laughs> with complete Western uh, idealism, okay, in this communist era or put it into the middle of China uh, under today's era, you know, it's just unfathomable. But that's what it was. You had East Germany, which was, you know, part of the Soviet Union, which was, you know, uh, socialism, um, communism, keep keep an eye on your neighbor and inform on him, if you will, you know. <laughs> and then you had West Germany, which was a complete free state within this area. And the only way you could get out of uh, Berlin was either drive through the Eastern Corridor, which was actually quite depressing, or you flew. You know, those are the only two ways of getting in and out. There was sort of a tension. There was sort of a, a sparkle in the city. And also one of the other things that a lot of people haven't realized about Berlin um, is if you were a, 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 a German teenager of 18 in West Germany, you got conscripted to the German army. The only way to get out of that was you moved to Berlin because of Berlin. If you lived in Berlin, you weren't conscripted into the army. So if you can imagine at 17 and a half, most West Germans that did not want to have to go to conscription in the army moved to Berlin to live in Berlin.
0: Did you ever make it over to, to East Berlin? Did you ever visit there?
3: Oh, yeah, be, I visit there quite often. Um, because uh, my, my mother used to go to East Germany to buy porcelain and uh, crystal that was made in, in, in East Germany. So, Karl Heinz, uh, no, Karl Enz was, I think, one of the big porcelain makers in East Germany at the time. So, she used to go over there and she used to buy porcelain and crystal because um, it was cheap. And because my father was connected to the military, we used to go over in the military convoy. So, wow. <laughs> we, so, so, we used to go over like three or four cars in the military convoy, and they'd go around to all these different places to buy this porcelain and this crystal. This is when I was about 13, 14, 12, you know, to buy this uh, crystal. And, uh, of course, you had these three or four military cars in a convoy. But then following the military cars in the convoy were like, was probably, I don't know if it was a Russian car, but then an East German car as well. You know, the police. (laughs) So keep an eye on you. To keep an eye on what are these people doing, you know, why are they coming to, to to East Berlin? Now I didn't think much of it at the time. It was great. Well, we'll go over here, but the contrast between what was in the West and what was in the East was day and night. You know, it, the, the buildings were run down. They weren't. They weren't weren't up to the specification that the West was after the war. You know, these were still buildings that had taken a, a beating during the war. And, you know, it, it was showing. You could see it. It was very, very different. And and the thing that David and and Jimmy used to love was you used to be able to travel on the S-Bahn, uh, which, and the S-Bahn means Straßenbahn, which is, is sort of mainly above ground. But when it went to go from the west to the east it went underground and it stopped at a place called Friedrichstrasse and then it continued after that and it came back out in the west now as you drove as you came on the underground on the s where it went underground was around about the Kürtnerstrasse just just before you got to the wall so it would go underground there and it went in, in into the east well As you came into each part of the East, you would have military guards underground in the tunnels with lights on, with machine guns, guarding that nobody got onto the train. I don't think they cared about anybody getting off it, but they made sure that nobody was going to get into the tunnel to get on the train, to get out of East Germany. So that was like a controlled area. And you went through, and when you got to Friedrichstrasse, you could actually get off the train because that was a border crossing, but you could actually get off the train and not go through the border crossing. But you could buy cigarettes and and drink duty-free, you know, tax-free, on the train train platform. So everybody used to go through Friedrichstrasse to buy cheap booze and cheap, cheap <laughs> cigarettes.
0: <laughs> like duty-free at the airport. <laughs> Yeah,
3: like duty-free in the airport, because it was in East Germany, all right? And then you got back on the train and hoped that by the time you got off the train at the other end, there wasn't a West Berlin uh, customs officer asking to look in your bag, because they did that from time to time. It wasn't much. I mean, most people could get away with a couple hundred cigarettes and a bottle of whiskey, but you certainly couldn't get away with like four cases of whiskey, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They'll be watching out for things like that. Yeah, so this was it. So they would get on the S-Bahn and ride the S-Bahn. And there's, there's a famous picture of them riding the S-Bahn, a picture of the two of them on the S-Bahn. I don't know if you've seen it.
0: Just two guys, just anonymous. Yeah I'll, have to, yeah, I'll have
3: to dig out some of these things and send them to you because you just smile at what the whole thing was. So this was, this was the whole background to the inspiration they were getting in Berlin and the ideas they were getting. I mean, Passenger uh, was written. About traveling the S-Bahn.
0: There's the story that they always tell, and I don't know if it's true of of uh, Tony and David and, and, and Jimmy being in the control room at Hansa and seeing the the East German guards in the the gun turret across through the window. Is that could you see that?
3: Well, no that 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 was on low. Now whether whether Jimmy was there at that time, I don't know because I wasn't I wasn't there on the day. There's, there is a, a photo of uh, David. Adu and Tony Visconti, behind the desk. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that photo. The three of them behind the desk. That was taken while they were doing low, um, while they were mixing low. But if you looked out of the the, the control room's window, you could see just the top of the wall uh, in the distance. It was about 200 yards, 300 yards away maybe you know about, about 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 if if you put yourself in in a one of your football stadiums mm. yeah uh, and you know like sat at one end of the stadium and looked at the other end of the stadium it was about that far away it was quite a distance away but just there there was a a, a, a tower which was a turret and the the east germans would be sitting in that tower overlooking the area which was between them and the wall, which was the no-man's area, which was where the mines were and where, you know, all the barbed wire was and if any, and all the lights were, and if anybody tried to run across there, they would shoot them or try to shoot them. So, you know, that was how people died uh, trying to escape uh, thing, And, of course, Edu wanted to have a bit of fun with the guys. So he told them about these East Germans and he said, they sit in that tower with guns. And they could shoot, and he's he's putting a little bit of emphasis on, you know, trying to put the wind up them. And <laughs> what we used to have was lamps hanging down over the over the the desk to lighten up the desk. Lighten the desk. So as they're standing there, and he's talking about it, he says, "Yeah, yeah." He says, "Yeah, but they can't actually see us because they, you know, we're too far away and everything. They could only see you if you sh- if you shone." shone a torch at them like this. And he turns one of these lights and aims it out of the window towards their tower. <laughs> now, the story is Tony and David dived under the desk. <laughs> now, that's the story. Now, whether it did happen that way, I don't know. Ada said it is, does, and Edu loves telling that story. <laughs> All right? But that's basically what happened. Yeah, you can see it. But that's how close you were to this. this this differential between East and West. And then when David went, was it 87, 88, he did his concert in Berlin?
0: Oh, at the Reichstag.
3: Yeah. He more or less, you know, set the stage up on the West side to aim at the East, you know? And he was like, listen, this is this is where we are. This is who we are. Here, have some free music. Now, I wasn't. I wasn't in Berlin at the time. I didn't see the concert at the time. I don't really have any background on that concert. But you know that was that was something else he did with Berlin. Now, and of course, after Heroes, he went back to Berlin to to record um, the 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 other album with uh, in 82, 83. Oh, Bow, which he did with me. Bow, yeah. So I mean, that would that's really the third album in the trilogy, the Berlin trilogy. I know they don't put it that way. But Lowe was the first one, and Lowe was only finished in Berlin. They, they, they'd they done all the, most of the music, uh, the backing tracks and everything for Lowe in, um, what was the name of the? Chateau, the
0: Chateau d'Auville? Yeah. I don't know if I'm saying it yeah, right. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chateau somewhere in France. And why they moved to Berlin at that time to do it, I don't know. It might have been to do with Edgar Frozer. I'm, I'm not, I'm I'm not party to that real insight to it because uh, David met up with Edgar Froeser at some stage in 76, 75, 76, and he went to stay with Edgar Froeser in Berlin for a while. So he he stayed with Edgar. Of course, and then David got the apartment on Hauptstrasse, and Jimmy stayed with uh, David uh, in David's apartment until he actually got his uh, own apartment in the back of the building. So David's apartment was in the front of the building and Jimmy's apartment was in the back. Did you ever visit? Uh, I I never visited David. I I visited Jimmy's twice because he bought a piano and he needed uh, it reconditioning. He bought an upright piano um, and he wanted it reconditioning. So I went with him to have a look at it. Can't really recall much about the apartment except for seeing his piano. And then I got a piano guy to have a look at it and recondition it, and took this piano guy to the uh, apartment. That's about it. But, but it's like I say, Jordan, I didn't really socialise with them. They they, they they were they weren't my social sphere, if you get what I mean. <laughs> I so, suppose. Yeah. I mean, well, I had a lot of musician friends at the time, and and it would have been very very difficult because if I had to socialise with Jimmy and David my other friends would, would be on the short short side of it and I couldn't really include them. Because it's not like you can sort of say, Oh, David's invited me to go such and such a place for a drink. Do you want to come with me? You know, it's that's not really what you do. Not not in a professional relationship.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. You can't if really I've bring your friends.
3: He, yeah. If he, if I've met him and he was just a friend of mine and whatever, I could say, Oh, yeah, I'll meet you for a beer, but David's asked me to go for a beer. Do you want to join us? You know, you could do that, but not in. You know, I didn't feel in a professional. So, so, so maybe my state, my status were more professional, and I, I, I wasn't a fan. <laughs> you know, when, it's, when they said David Bowie's coming to hands, it was like okay, <laughs> you know, great. But when I heard Brian Eno, when I heard Brian Eno was going to be there, you know, it's a different colour of fish.
0: Oh yeah, what was that like? What was it like working with them together? How was their relationship?
3: Their relationship was brilliant. I mean, they just they just buzzed off each other. And and well, David really buzzed off Brian. You know, Brian would come up with these these thought processes of what to do and everything and David would be going, "Oh yeah, yeah, you know, that would." You could see he was following following that direction.
0: Were they funny? I always hear these stories about them doing like like uh Peter Cook and Dudley Moore routines and stuff like that. Were they funny together?
3: Yeah. I don't know about being funny. It, it was fun. I don't really remember things like that, you know, but maybe that was more, more, you know, to the side. Like when, when they were doing other things together, you know, when, when they left the studio and went and did something else, they might've done stuff like that because obviously we were in the studio eight, 10 hours a day, but then the rest of the time was just a lot of other stuff going on.
0: Did David know the sounds that he wanted, or was there a lot of experimentation going on and trying stuff out, and then afterwards kind of, of refining? It, a
3: lot of experiment, a lot of experimentation, and and this is the other thing I would say, in fairness to Ido, I think a lot of the pre pre ideas for the way to get uh, the studio to sound when David was going to do the album was work that Ada and I put together you know we, we we put the big boom room mic in there we put all the other stuff around because that was the ambience we were trying to create, we were trying to get the sound of the room, now you see this, the, the main hall was divided in, in a quarter of it had this enormous um, um, curtain that went right across the hall And for most of the stuff that was done in Studio 2, everybody used to record within this curtain area, which was about a quarter of the, the room. It's where the drum box was. There was a drum box where you put the drummer in, and then everything else had these barriers around them to muffle the sound. So sound was more muffled. And then you had this enormous curtain blocking off the main part of the hall. But what I did a lot of with Edu over the time was... We would do a lot of work with the Berlin Philharmonic um, and their orchestra coming to do productions, music productions, for German TV. So if there was music needed to be recorded, orchestral music, for German TV, it would be done in hands of, in the main hall. And this way we would move the curtain out the way and you would use the whole of the hall for orchestral stuff and you'll probably be able to find some photos of orchestras in the, in the main hall recording but until heroes no band no music was recorded in the studio in that way where we put the drum drums up on the stage because there was a, a sta- you know the stage platform and then the rest of the the instruments the bass the electric guitar the piano and everything was on the hall side of this huge curtain, because we basically almost didn't use the other side, so everything was recorded in the hall to get that huge ambient sound. That was what we were looking for, and that was that was more or less what Edu and I had spoken about well before you know Heroes was even started, because we did some we did some great stuff in in Studio Two in orchestral stuff. I I think you could probably liken it to To Abbey Road, mm-hmm. I've never been in Abbey Road, but I've seen pictures of Abbey Road, and Abbey Road is huge high ceiling, and you know everything is it, it, you can get that orchestral sound in Abbey Road. And you could have got back in those days that orchestral sound in in Hansa too. So that was the sort of m- the move that that Ado and I really buzzed on was getting this. Huge sound, you know. Try to get something
0: sound much bigger, and then you get something like heroes.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. I'm, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that uh, my feedback with Adu and what I brought to the table with Edu not being there is is it helped to create some of that uh, uh, ambience and create some of the sounds.
0: Do you have a favorite memory of those sessions or of your time together?
3: The favorite memory of of, of that, yeah, I think my favorite memory of it was doing the vocals with David, because it's <laughs> a good choice. We, well, we did, No, we did. Yeah, well, we did, we did. A, I set up a back-to-back mic. I, I, I set up two U, uh, UL seventy nines facing each other, so David, you know, David and I were facing each other doing it. And there was the buzz feeling between that. So doing the backing vocals was like, you know i had I had my chance to have my fifteen seconds of fame, you know i'm I'm standing with David and we're seeing it, and there was uh, there was that buzz And, and, and I, I had that same sort of buzz doing that with passenger, thinking, this is the closest I will ever get to being an artist wow. because I'll never be an artist.
0: I, I disagree. Yeah. I think everything that you're describing about how you added to, to the sounds of all all these songs, I think you have absolutely proven yourself as an artist.
3: At the time, it was nothing special. And today, it's nothing special unless I'm actually talking to somebody that gets that buzz out of it. You know, whether everybody on the planet knows about it, doesn't make any difference to me.
1: perfect home sweet home
4: okay i love walker hayes he's amazing he's so fun such a great entertainer and that's why i'm so excited that jc penny and country music singer songwriter walker hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy the walker hayes for jc penny collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid back appeal Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
2: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, Tempt to hire part-time or full-time. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
3: Have you had any contact with Duncan?
0: With David's son? No, no. I mean, to be honest with you, I haven't even tried to reach out. I I sort of got the impression that, that he liked to keep those memories to himself, which is totally understandable.
3: One of the things that I would love to be able to do at some stage, probably before I die, was find out of Duncan if he realized how passionate his father was about him being his son at that time in Berlin. Because Duncan was not about six, seven, eight. He was only a very young child. And I mean, I don't know what you remember of the time with your father when you were six, seven or eight. Um, Mm -hmm. But your father probably had a lot more time for you than David had for Duncan, or, you know, was able to make, because he had some, he was spending so much time being this, this uh, persona that the world wanted.
0: Yeah, he belonged to everybody.
3: Yeah, but, but, oh, I believe, I honestly believe this from the little, the, you know, the couple of years of interaction I had with David, Duncan was a huge part of what his feelings were. You know, he, he, he had the, he had that father emotion. Now, whether he ever showed it at the time, I don't know, because, you know, it's, it's like a different thing. But I believe he did, because I believe, now, I don't know how true the story is, but I believe when he died, part of his will was to leave a million dollars or a million euros to Duncan's uh, nanny, the girl in Berlin that looked after him, now I, I have I mean, that's what I've been told, I think through different conversations or with different people. But yeah, but he still had that connection with 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 the girl that had looked after Duncan for him all that time in Berlin. Now, when that stopped, when that started and when that stopped and how that progressed, I don't know. But for me, that would be a more interesting conversation now with Duncan than anything to do with his father. You
0: know, if I ever do manage to get in touch, you know, with him, yeah. I, I would let you I'll tell him that I spoke with you and, and that, you know, you yeah. can, would love to to let him know. I mean, I, I have a, a parent who, who passed away when I was very young and I, I, I know I've had really? some some of. There are some of her friends uh, get in touch with me years later to kind of let me know what she was really like, especially at that time when you're yeah. a kid and you don't really know. And yeah, that's very special. I, I know firsthand how special that can be. So I, you know what, I yeah. for you, I will, I will, I now have a reason to try to get in touch with him. I will, I will yeah. do that, and I'll let you know if I succeed.
3: Yeah, because Jordan, it's like this. I mean, they turn up at the studio, and obviously there's work to be going on and everything, and it was like wait a minute, we need to get Duncan to school. And I said, well, I've got the minibus there. I'll take the minibus, I'll drive him to school. And I must have driven into school two or three times. You know, I don't really I don't really recall the... the, the, the because to me, it was just something, oh, let's get Duncan to school and get back to the studios as quick as I can. Right. <laughs> to, 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 <laughs> you to, to, to work. <laughs> you know? Uh, but um, yeah, but th- 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 those were little things. And I just thought, and of course... That was heroes. So that was after the period David had spent all this time on the telephone during Lust for Life. And I I mean, I know how much time he spent on the phone and how much it costs because every night I would have to do the studio breakdown for what expenses had to go onto the bill for RCA. And for Lust Lust for Life, the telephone bill was huge. (laughs) (laughs) Because obviously he, he was using the studio phone to phone... Uh, uh, California and of course it went on there and you know whatever the rate was RCA were paying the bill <laughs> I'd love to see a copy copy of some of those bills oh
0: yeah I, oh I wonder if they have them in the archives or something yeah I doubt it I doubt it I was lucky enough to visit Hansa uh, last year and it, it, it was amazing it was such an incredible room what a beautiful room
3: now it's an absolute beautiful room well people there it was derelict. The windows were all boarded up. Back <laughs> in those days, it looked nothing like it does now. Absolutely nothing like it. It's day and night difference.
0: Did it still seem like kind of a grand room, or was it really just like a big, almost like a oh, gymnasium? Yeah, it,
3: was a big, it was a big room. It, it, you could, it, it had the feeling of what it had been set up for originally. And set up for originally was, was done for... For the Nazi, it was done for the Nazi uh, hierarchy to go and listen to chamber music.
0: <laughs> it's a weird energy you know? in there.
3: Yeah, you know, if you just got to think about it. You know, I'm, I, I, I don't know. I've never seen any records of it, but I'm sure Adolf went in there and listened to music with somebody playing live music in there at some stage, because it was one of the, you know, back in the in the 30s. That's what it was done for.
0: Wow, what a, what a, a strange, in, intense history for one building to have. You know, I mean, going yeah. from just night and day from from the Nazis yeah. to to Bono yeah. and you two, yeah, and Bowie, yeah.
3: I, I've been going to Berlin now for David's birthday for five years, and and every time somebody's there, they say, "Well, where did they kiss?" <laughs> And uh, I'm now standing in the window, all right, uh, where they were meant to have kissed. And they said, "Where did they kiss?" And I went, "Well, you look out the window now. There's all these buildings there. Before that, there were none of those buildings there. There was only one, but that obstructed your view of the actual wall, and there were walls in between, so so you couldn't actually see the wall." Um, I said, "I said it could have been possible." that they were outside here because just underneath the window of the of the the, uh, uh, the control room is a little yard a little courtyard where we used to park the minibus they might have got into that yard he might have seen them kissing there but i i almost don't think so i think it was more an artistic impression of he felt so close to the wall there might have been a romantic connotation between Antonio Mars and Tony Wiscondi. I don't know. I wasn't with them 24 seven. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not going to say it wasn't, um, uh, you know, if, if I had to take a punt, I would say it wasn't, I don't, I, you know, I'm not the person I, like I say, I wasn't there. Um, and that the story didn't come
0: out till 15 years later. David's good at making up stories. <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, that's it. That's it. And, and, and he, on, the same, on the same point, you know, he told me about being in Tokyo in this hotel and walking out of the hotel room and meeting John Lennon and Yoko Ono and they were doing this and they were doing that and he told me all these different things about it. That could well have been made up. <laughs> Do you know what? That, that might have been his awesome impression of uh, of wanted to tell me a story that would interest me. You know, I don't know.
0: That's a really great point. Wow.
3: Yeah, you, you, you just don't know these things that... Be, and, and, and I've spoken to so many different people that over years, uh, years ago, had brief encounters with David. And their stories seem to be clouded in a mist. You're going, really? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> they're all... As if,
0: you know, I have a story to tell, but this is this is this is what it is. Again, it gets back to what you were saying earlier. You saw what he wanted you to see, and uh, yeah. and that's why he was so Absolutely. many different things, to so many different people. Yeah,
3: yeah. And, and, and 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 the thing about me with the vocals uh, uh, on on Lust for Life and on Heroes, I was there. I I was there. I did those things. I know it. Nobody else needs to know. You know, unless somebody like yourself specifically says, oh, look, tell me about that. Tell me about that. Tell me your story. Um, and like I'm telling you now, Jordan, you know, it probably not going to assist you write a better article or make a better podcast about it, but it might just give you a different insight into how you look at all the information you're gathering.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that was part of the idea with this was that I, I, I was writing something to, to then do voiceovers for and, and, and record it and share that. But I thought, you know what? I, that's just my point of view. I want to get a bunch of people's point of view. He was such a multi multifaceted person. I want to talk to as many people as I can to to do interviews with them and 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 share that so that it's kind of like, don't take my word for it. Here's everybody else's point of view. Make your own. Try to like figure out your own truth about who this person is, who meant so much to so many people, but seemed to be so many different things to so many different people. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.